Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories like Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, all those places. And then I also have a blog, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is October 27th, 2021. And in this episode, we are going to apply Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model as a financial framework for big-time college sports to the testimony of witnesses in this hearing in the House on September 30th of 2021, uh, notably including Dr. Linda Livingstone, the president of Baylor University and also the ultimate NCAA insider, as I've discussed in prior episodes. And... uh, Dr. Livingstone structured her entire testimony around this financial framework that requires the maximum exploitation of football and men's basketball to fund downstream non-revenue sports and interests. That is the basic framework that she used. She doesn't refer to Miles Brand. She doesn't call this framework the collegiate model, but there is no question that's what she is advocating here. And then that theme was picked up on in some questions that she received. One really was a general question about Title IX from Jan Schakowsky, who is the chair of that subcommittee in the House. And although that question was not specifically about the financial model for big-time college sports, Dr. Livingstone weaved the collegiate model into her response, and that was interesting. And we're going to go through that. Then through questions from what I believe are NCAA-friendly legislators on that subcommittee. One is Kelly Armstrong, a Republican from North Dakota, and the other is Jeff Duncan, a Republican from South Carolina, who was a signatory on this Gonzalez-Cleaver bill, the Level Playing Field Act, which was really the subtext for this entire hearing. But both Armstrong and Duncan got right to the point, and they were saying, look, what happens if we don't have all this massive revenue to redistribute and to send downstream to these non-revenue sports and non-revenue athletes? And Dr. Livingstone, with an assist from Mark Emmert, and then some follow-up questions from other NCAA-friendly Republican members of that subcommittee, said, look, the college sports world as we know it will come to an end, and we're going to have to either reduce funding for for these non-revenue sports or cut them all together. So I want to look specifically at how this boogeyman was constructed at this hearing, because this is the new boogeyman and underlying it. And I've said this in prior episodes, this really wasn't about name, image, and likeness. This was about the revenue sharing component of the Athletes' Bill of Rights, which was put on the table in the Senate by Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker. And in that legislation, which is really the only true comprehensive pro-athlete legislation that has been proposed in either chamber, there would be a requirement that 50% of the revenue generated by big-time football and big-time men's basketball programs go back to the athletes who actually earn it. Not really a radical concept in the United States of America, but in this formulation of the financial structure of, of intercollegiate athletics that Miles Brand articulated in 2006 and that's been picked up on now by Linda Livingstone and Mark Emmert and the Republican minions in, in Congress, sharing the wealth with the people who generate it is heresy. It's outright heresy. And that narrative has become so deeply embedded in the way that the beneficiaries of the big-time college sports marketplace think about the relationship between the money makers and the money takers in big-time college sports. And the money makers are largely African-American laborers in football and men's basketball. And the takers are largely white beneficiaries in non-revenue sports and then institutional white beneficiaries at the university, at the conference level, at the NCAA, of course. And then also through the massive sports entertainment industrial complex in what is at least a $20 billion a year college sports marketplace. So this hearing was really important in that respect, because as I mentioned earlier in other episodes, 
the collegiate model has really been kept in the closet in this whole debate in the Congress that started really in February of 2020 when the NCAA was trying to make the case for these federal protections and immunities that would basically place it above the law and untouchable as a regulator in college sports. And all the things that the NCAA was asking for in February of 2020 are the same things that the NCAA and Linda Livingstone and these Republican legislators were advocating for on September 30th, 2021, just last month. So if you're an NCAA in-systems uh, stakeholder beneficiary or a Power 5 stakeholder beneficiary, how do you talk about the collegiate model in 2021 in a way that doesn't raise some of the obvious flaws in that thinking and the inequities in that thinking? Well, it's pretty easy. Actually, at least in the United States Congress, you hire a bunch of lobbyists and lawyers to help you create the illusion that the beneficiaries of this massive regressive transfer of wealth are actually the victims. And that's precisely what Linda Livingstone did in her testimony at this hearing. And if you just happen to be jumping into this podcast here at episode 70, you need to go back and listen to episode 69, where I discuss the history and definition of the collegiate model as a financial framework for the massive redistribution of revenues in big time college sports products. And again, this theory applies only to schools that make enough money through football, men's basketball to have enough net revenue to shift over to fund the rest of the athletics budget. It This theory has absolutely zero applicability to any NCAA product that doesn't generate that kind of revenue, which means downstream division one, all of division two and all of division three. And as we're going to get to uh, a little bit later on in the episode, both Linda Livingstone and Mark Emmert explicitly acknowledged that. In fact, Emmert, in response to a question that went directly to this transfer of wealth thinking, he said that there were probably only 50 schools of the 1,100 schools throughout the NCAA through, uh, across all three divisions that make enough money from football and men's basketball to send money downstream to non-revenue sports and non-revenue athletes. And then all these other ways that athletics departments flush money down the toilet on these coaching salaries and bloated administrative staffs and facilities that really are recruiting bling more than they are for the benefit of the athletes who are actually there. And all of these satellite athletic interests and costs that the university uh, has convinced itself it doesn't have to pay for at a general university operating fund. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to talk about what happened at Stanford University in the summer of 2020 and then how it was resolved in May of 2021 because Stanford cut some sports. And that's a good insight into the way that big time universities, some of the richest and most powerful universities in the world, not just in the United States, but in the world. Think about big time college sports finances and this belief that is just deep, deep in the DNA of these institutions that they can't spend a penny of general university revenue or line item, any athletics costs as a general university expense. And one of the things that Livingstone did here was try to conflate the interests of these schools that generate zero revenue in football and men's basketball with those top 50 schools who do make enough money to fund the rest of their athletics department from those two sports. That conflation was a purposeful tactic to elicit sympathy from this subcommittee and to portray these downstream interests that are really irrelevant to the collegiate model and this redistribution of wealth to portray them as victims. So in these principles that Livingstone lays out to frame her testimony, she says, and this is the second principle, and I think this is the most important one of the three, but she says the second principle is that federal legislation should support the current mission of broad sport offerings for a diverse group of student athletes made possible by revenue shared from higher visibility sports and avoid the creation of inequities in the treatment of men and women under an employment model. So at its most fundamental level there, Livingstone is describing the collegiate model 
in this transfer of wealth from the higher visibility sports. Here she doesn't say football and men's basketball. And that's, I think, important. Every word of that paragraph that I just read you, every word of that principle was carefully chosen to minimize the interests of the people who produce the revenue and to accentuate the interests of the people who would be victims if they didn't have access to that revenue. So let's break this down a little bit. She says that federal legislation should support the current mission of broad sports offerings. And that is really a call for the preservation of the status quo. And the only way that we can preserve this status quo is through federal protections and immunities. Extraordinary federal protections and immunities that would make the status quo federal law. So we have this, the current mission of a broad sports offering. And then she says, for a diverse group of student athletes, diverse group. So that word alone is a powerful buzzword in uh, higher education. It's a powerful buzzword socially, culturally, and it's a very powerful buzzword for congressional decision makers because they respond to that because they're politicians. That's what they do. But a diverse group of student athletes made possible by revenue shared. Now, that the use of the word shared is purposeful. And that word suggests a couple of things. One is that this is a voluntary redistribution of wealth, that the laborers who produce this wealth are voluntarily sharing. So they're just sharing this revenue. And it comes from the high visibility sports, not specifically from football and men's basketball. The other thing that the use of that word suggests is that if there's any objection to the sharing of this revenue, then the people who aren't sharing are greedy, bad actors. That is the invisible message here. And then she goes on to say, to avoid, well, we want to have this sharing for a diverse group of student athletes to support the current mission of broad sports offerings, to avoid the creation of inequities. So now she has invoked inequities and those inequities are in the treatment of men and women under an employment model. Now, remember, she's here to talk about name, image, and likeness, but all of a sudden she's talking about an employment model. Name, image, and likeness has nothing to do with an employment model because under all of these nil laws, the athletes can't do business with the universities. They can only do business with the third party. And Hawaii Senator Brian Schatz got to that in that June 9th. 2021 hearing when he called out the NCAA on that and said, this student athlete provision, the the provision that athletes cannot be deemed employees has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. So when Livingstone is invoking the employment model, she's really talking about the revenue sharing components of the athlete's bill of rights or any proposal that would actually treat these revenue producing athletes as the employees that they are. But the way she's framing the collegiate model here, she is doing it in a very divisive way because she explicitly makes it an issue about diversity, which implies race, and then about the treatment of men and women and the inequities in the treatment between men and women. If we don't take the money from these high visibility sports and fund the scholarships and programs for women's sports. And then to achieve all of these goals, we need federal preemption of any state law that interferes with NCAA authority. We need absolute antitrust immunity so that federal courts will have no say in what college sports looks like or the availability of that form to redress athlete grievances. And we want to make sure that these people who are making the money can't organize as laborers to protect their rights as employees. We need all of those federal protections and immunities to make sure that these downstream beneficiaries get their scholarships. And if they don't have access to that money, those sports will disappear. Those opportunities will disappear. And when I talk about what happened at Stanford, I'm going to expose that argument as a profound lie. And it's one of the biggest lies that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries at the Division I Power Five level have been putting out for years. And then 
Livingstone does something that's very subtle, but it's a theme she reinforces throughout. And this is just a false narrative. She says, the third principle is to ensure that each institution's mission is preserved and unique circumstances are recognized, appreciating that different schools have different resource levels. For example, we know Baylor athletics is vastly different than those of hundreds of smaller institutions. And then she gets into the need for federal protections and immunities. But that third principle dovetails with the, this diversion of wealth under the collegiate model. And she's conflating the interest here of this small group of high-powered Division I schools, the only schools that the collegiate model can apply to by definition and by the admission of Livingstone and Emmert later on in their testimony. But she's conflating the interests of these power five schools with the interests of schools that have to pay for their entire athletics budgets out of general operating revenues. And they line item them as general university operating expenses because there are no revenues in that model and those products to redistribute. So this conflation of the interests of the power five with a division two HBCU conference which is the conflation that Livingstone wanted the subcommittee to buy into because we had a witness, an African-American female witness from this Division II HBCU conference. So look, her interests are the same as ours. And if we don't get these federal protections and immunities, she's going to be hurt as much as we are. And now I would just want to go through how this issue came up again. This formulation of the collegiate model came up again in response to questions. And I'm going to start with a question by Jan Schakowsky, again, who is the chair of that uh, subcommittee in the House. And she is a Democrat. And she asked a general question about Title IX. And a lot of the witnesses, the mostly the female witnesses through these seven hearings since February of 2020, have gotten questions like this. And it's been couched in a number of ways. One, is there really a Title IX issue with nil compensation? And even Mark Emmert has said, not really. And the reason for that, and, and law professors have said this at some of these hearings, is that because the universities are not participants in this marketplace by definition, because this, this market can only exist between the athletes and third parties, the institution's really not involved here. There aren't any institutional interests that would invoke Title IX in the first place. And that even if there were, it doesn't necessarily mean that there are Title IX implications. So the whole Title IX issue has been overblown. But Schakowsky asks Dr. Livingstone, she says, we know all about the Title IX that prohibits discrimination. Will the nil deals have any effect on equity in college athletics when it comes to men and women. And then Livingstone says, I do think that there are some real risks and impact potentially on women in college athletics, depending on how this plays out. And then she goes on to say, I think over time where you will see the greater impact and a greater potential negative impact on women's athletes is if we move to more of an employment model. And I'm going to stop right there because there. Livingstone is not talking at all about name, image, and likeness. Because again, by the very uh, definition of this nil marketplace, there is no employment relationship. She's referring here to, I think, the Athletes' Bill of Rights and this revenue sharing component, which was the empty chair at this hearing. It, it was an important part of what was happening, the subtext of what was happening, but nobody really talked about it explicitly. And then Livingstone goes on to say, and if you start moving resources to those individuals that generate the revenue, that revenue and those high revenue sports is what supports our women's sports. It supports our non-revenue male sports as well. And so if we reallocated resources away from those two sports that generate the most, we will run the risk of seeing cuts in those sports or reductions in the number of both men's non-revenue sports and then ultimately potentially women's sports. And I think a move to potentially fewer sports if we start talking about reallocating revenue in certain ways, even far beyond the impact of nil. And again, that is the specific invocation of the collegiate model, not really to prevent any inequities in the nil market because the nil market is irrelevant in terms of revenue sharing. This is about the revenue producing athletes getting a piece of the pie from the revenue that they generate. And under Livingstone's view of the world, that is an existential threat to the interests of non-revenue sports and in particular women who play non-revenue sports.
So again, you, you have her invoking the collegiate model really as a social justice issue when the, when the reality is that the social justice issue is that the people who make the money, the African-American men who generate this money are being treated like the bad actors if they don't just turn over all that money to downstream beneficiaries who are overwhelmingly white and comparatively well off. That's the framing that Livingstone is engaging in here. And then the next explicit invocation of this transfer of wealth theory came in response to questions from a gentleman named Kelly Armstrong, a Republican from North Dakota, and he's right out of central casting. I mean, he is the perfect Republican congressman to present these arguments. And I just want to say something real quick about the nature of congressional hearings. And for the hearings that have been conducted in connection with this name, image, and likeness debate going back to February of 2020. I have uh, watched those hearings more than once. I have read all the written material. I've gone back and tried to track down the questions that were sent after the hearing and really studied these hearings. And there's a very predictable pattern here. And in both the Senate and the House, these witnesses, they go around and meet with the members of the committee that they're going to be testifying in front of to preview their testimony, to lobby a little bit, and also to get some sense of what that particular congressperson's interest is in the hearing, in the subject matter of the hearing. And then typically the legislators have only five minutes to ask their questions. They get to make a little statement at the beginning and then they have about five minutes of questions. That's not much time. It's very little time. And then you have a congresswoman who wants to speechify and they speechify for three minutes and then ask a couple of questions where the witnesses, if it's a hostile question, they're bobbing and weaving and going into the four corners to, to stall. If it's a friendly question, well, thank you. Thank you, Congressman XYZ, for that question. That is really an important question. For the instance stakeholder beneficiaries here, this Armstrong guy, and then Jeff Duncan, this Republican from South Carolina, it was, well, thank you for the question. My gosh, thank you so much. Which means, of course, that the witnesses knew exactly what Armstrong was going to ask. They knew exactly what theme he was going to put on the table, and they knew exactly how they were going to respond. So this is kabuki theater. And that, I think, is important to understand, at least because it means that these answers aren't spontaneous. They have given some careful thought and groomed the responses to these questions through their lobbyists and their lawyers to cr create a record, to have a testimonial record that is as favorable as possible to the ultimate goal that they seek. And here, what they seek is the preservation of the existing status quo through the federalization of the college sports regulatory market and then putting the NCAA in charge of that and eliminating external regulators and ensconcing into federal law NCAA compensation limits that preserve the gravy train revenue streams, both in football and men's basketball. But for purposes of this hearing and for purposes of this constitutional committee and for purposes of the NCAA, this relates to one thing and one thing only, and that is the March Madness Tournament. And I talked in the last episode about how important that was to Miles Brand when he was articulating the collegiate model and justifying the maximum exploitation of revenue in the revenue producing sports. Football was irrelevant because the NCAA has nothing to do with that product because of the Board of Regents decision. This is about March Madness. All this is about March Madness. And I believe that Linda Livingstone's disguised purpose here and her refusal to identify her interests as a, the ultimate NCAA insider was part of that strategy that she just wanted to pump the NCAA's interest, which is to keep the gravy train rolling. And one of the ways to do that was to get this one thing preemption, which is really the purpose of, of that hearing. And if the NCAA gets that, then they're relevant again as a national regulator and perhaps a national enforcement agency for any federalized no marketplace. That's what this was about. So let's now turn to Congressman Armstrong, Kelly Armstrong, Republican from North Dakota, and how he invokes the collegiate model. Armstrong asks both Emmert and Livingstone to provide figures on the number of student athletes that participate both at the NCAA and at Baylor. Their answers are important here because Emmert just flat out admits that the only schools that generate 
enough revenue to distribute under the Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model are about 50 or so, all of them Power 5 schools. Emmert says, there is roughly a half a million student athletes that play across in total over 19,000 different teams, 1,100 different schools. And I just want to note that is association-wide. So that is all of Division One, Division Two, and Division Three combined. Most of those, all of those programs have basketball programs and football programs. But for the great majority of those 1,100 schools, none of them are revenue-producing sports. None of them are revenue-producing sports. Then Emmer goes on to say, when you look at the total revenue minus expenses of schools, there's well less than 50 of those 1,100 schools that we would describe as cash flow positive or profitable. But where they are profitable, that revenue is grossly disproportionately coming from football and men's basketball. I mean, that's it. That's about as honest as uh, an answer as you're going to get from Mark Emmert. And I think he was saying that, just describing the demographic, not a demographic, but the the scope of the of the schools and the number of teams, and then how the money fits into that. And basically, what he's saying is that you only have two sports: football, men's basketball, in about 50 schools where that dynamic exists, where you have enough revenue to support the rest of your athletics progress, which means that for the other 1,050 schools across the three divisions in the NCAA, those universities have to decide every year how to spend uh, money from general operating revenues and uh, line item expenses. Those are tough choices, but that's the overwhelming rule. These schools that have the luxury of funding all these downstream beneficiaries and then all the overhead costs and all these coaching salaries and Taj Mahal facilities, they have the luxury of looking at their budget in terms of self-sustainability. That is just a, a, an extreme outlier in the overall mosaic of college sports. And then Livingstone, in response to that question, she points out that there are about 525 student athletes across 19 sports at Baylor. She was asked about how many were in men's basketball and football. I don't think she provides numbers there. But I, of those 525 athletes, less than 100 would be scholarship football or men's basketball players because the scholarship limit of fo in football is 85. Scholarship limit in men's basketball is 13. So you have 98 athletes there where Baylor's having to really invest in them. And that's less than 20% of all athletes at Baylor, which means that, what, 18, 19% of the athletes are funding the entire athletics department. And these other athletes, these other 425 athletes, many of whom are full headcount scholarship athletes, they are benefiting directly from the labor of less than 20% of the athlete population at Baylor. It's a massive, massive redistribution of wealth. And that also ties into the coaching salaries and the, uh, all of the bloated administrative staffing and, and personnel and the athletics directors, ridiculous salaries and all the facilities, all that stuff, all that comes from a very small slice of the overall athlete population at Baylor. And of those 100 athletes in football and men's basketball that bring home the bacon, a disproportionately high number of them are African-American. And among the 425 athletes in other sports who are beneficiaries of the revenue from football and men's basketball, a disproportionately high number of them are white. But... I would say this is fairly representative of the overall student athlete population and the number of sports. A lot of these uh, Power Five schools are they're uh, sponsoring over twenty sports, and that's a nice thing to be able to do when you have a model that mandates the redistribution, the massive redistribution of wealth from these two sports to the, all these other interests that can't pay for themselves. And then Armstrong, I think, just gets to the heart of the matter. And he comes out and without naming the Athletes' Bill of Rights, he puts on the table what this hearing is all about and what the concerns are all about that have been disguised by this discussion of name, image, and likeness. So Armstrong says, thank you. And I think those numbers 
indicate that there is a significant majority of student athletes that participate in non-revenue sports. And there is a Senate proposal that would require institutions to pay 50% of revenue from certain revenue generating sports minus expenses to a fund that would be distributed to all athletes in that specific sport. Now, Dr. Livingstone, it is my understanding that many institutions use funds generated by revenue sports to sustain non-revenue sports. Is that correct? That's a toughie right there, boy. And so Dr. Livingstone says that is correct. So when we look at our overall athletics budget, all of that revenue goes into one pool, so to speak. And then we use that to support all of our sports programs, all of the support services that we provide across sports programs. And it would be very challenging for even an institution like Baylor or institutions in the Power Five conferences to support as many non-revenue sports as we do, as many women's sports as we do, if you had a model like that. And then if you think about those institutions who do not have profitable programs, even in men's basketball and football, doing some kind of reallocation would be even more devastating to those kinds of institutions. I just want to stop there. So she admits that the entire athletics budget has to be paid for from these two sports and that we'd be in a world of hurt if we didn't have that redistribution of wealth. And then she throws in the gender equity issue. We couldn't have as many women's sports. And then she conflates the interests of Baylor with NCAA products that generate zero revenue, which makes no sense at all because she says, look, if those institutions who do not have profitable programs doing some kind of reallocation would be even more devastating to those kinds of institutions. Well, there couldn't be a reallocation because by definition under the Athletes' Bill of Rights, we're talking about net revenue. And by Mark Emmert's own admission for 95% of the products in the NCAA, there is no net revenue. So how in the world can any of those products, the lower level division one or any product in division two or division three be harmed by a revenue sharing requirements of the athlete's bill of rights that could only by definition apply to at most 50 of the 1100 schools in the NCAA. Livingstone uses real powerful language and she says that these schools could be devastated because of this revenue sharing requirement. And Livingstone and the, the lobbyists are okay with that kind of misdirection because they don't really give a damn about the truth here. What they care about is trying to convince these 11 women on this 24-member subcommittee, nine of those women are Democrat women, two are African-American Democrat women. They're arguing to those women and they want those women to believe that the HBCUs in this Division II conference represented by one of the witnesses at that hearing are going to be harmed just as much as Ohio State or Alabama or UCLA or Clemson. That's what they want them to believe. And there was no challenge to that argument at that hearing by any witness. Well, four of the five were openly supportive of that theory. And Ramoji Huma didn't really address it, and nobody on the subcommittee addressed it. And the reason that no difficult questions came up here is that the subcommittee members don't understand the business model enough to ask those questions or to look at how the NCAA and Power Five advocates have framed patently false narratives in ways that just slip right through into the debate and all of a sudden they're part of the record and then they become a legitimate talking point. And that's a problem here. And, not, and I think it's just endemic to the forum in some ways and, and to the way that information makes it through the political process. But it also speaks to the fact that these athletes haven't had a lobbying presence in Washington. So then Armstrong continues. He says, yeah, so if we assume that covered sports for this provision are likely to be men's football and basketball, we are benefiting athletes of those sports at the cost of other sports and student athletes. Will their sports even exist at the collegiate level without those funds? Dr. Livingstone, what challenge would an institution face if its revenue sports were no longer funding non-revenue sports? And Livingstone says this. Well, we would have to make some very, very difficult choices. You would either have to decide to either fund those other sports at a much, much lower level, 
or you might have to decide to reduce the number of sports you offered, or you would have to make a determination to reallocate resources from other aspects of your university to then support those sports programs that used to be supported by athletics revenue. And that is very challenging in higher education. We try to do everything we can to make our athletics programs self-sustaining and not have to use resources from other parts of the university to support our athletics programs. And that is challenging given the small number of institutions that actually have athletics programs that generate excess revenue. So in the mind of Linda Livingstone, the most likely options are options that would reduce opportunities, reduce funding, or perhaps result in the outright elimination of sports. And while she mentions reallocation of resources, that's presented as a last resort. Heaven forbid that Baylor University has to do what 95% of the rest of the NCAA has to do. That is decide at an institutional level the extent to which they want to use general operating expenses, revenues, and then budgeting through the general university side for these sports that would be on the chopping block, according to Livingstone's logic. They don't have to go away. They don't have to reduce funding. They just move some money as universities do. Miles Brand was talking about, well, this is just what universities do. Well, you know what else do universities do? They move money back and forth. It's a massive shell game. And there's no way to trace. A, do- a dollar goes into the university. There's no way to trace that dollar and where it actually lands. And it's just really this Byzantine game of cross-subsidies and inter-transfers and all of these inside dealings where money moves. And on one side of the budget, it's counted as an expense. On the other side, in another department, it could be counted as revenue. So this isn't about the affordability. This is about the belief that comes from this collegiate model that if a penny of general university revenue comes from the academic side to the athletic side, that that somehow is a grand corruption. And that comes from some narratives that are deeply embedded in the power five, which are the most powerful, richest, and uh, most highly selective universities in the United States of America outside of the, the Ivy League. So you have this way of thinking about the relationship between big-time college sports and the academy that is imbued with a bunch of academic elitism. And I think some dog whistle narratives have a really uncomfortable racial connotation. And I'm going to get to that in other episodes. But these elite universities feel like it's beneath them to take money from general operating expenses and then to put it over into athletics. And I think that's in large part the result of decades of advocacy. Actually, this goes back to the 1920s. This is what the Carnegie Report was talking about in 1929, that these Big-time commercialized, professionalized sports have no business in higher education. And you're back to that fundamental tension that Miles Brand was trying to resolve. But under, underneath that are some elitist beliefs that in the 21st century have obvious racial connotations. That, and that is that we don't have to value these revenue-producing athletes. They're lucky to be here. They shouldn't be here in the first place, quite frankly. That's how a lot of people on the faculty side and the academic side think about big-time college sports. And that viewpoint is far more widespread than anybody will ever admit. And then they have all kinds of justifications. We can't pay these guys because, look, they're going to they're gonna go pro anyway. These revenue-producing athletes would have no value, no independent value, if they weren't affiliated with our university and our coach and our program. So they have no business being here, and they can't be exploited if they have no business being here. I mean, that's the way these people think on the academic side. And it was this kind of thinking, because Miles Brand thought that way before he became the NCAA president. That's what he was essentially parroting in his 2001 State of the Association speech. And then he comes out in 2006 and he's on the other side of the earth. But those hostile values towards big time college sports and the athletes who play them underlie, I think, some of the, the, the arrogance in this belief that these athletics departments have to be fully self-sustaining. So let's look at what happened at Stanford University. When these antitrust suits, when they were trying to prove what market conditions would exist given different scenarios. A lot of that comes from expert testimony and projections and studies and models and all that stuff. But there's another way 
I think a more effective way that some of the uh, experts in that case, the athletes experts in that case, looked at the college sports marketplace. And they used what are called natural experiments, where you have some of these things that would be projected through expert opinions and conjecture that actually play out in the market. Let's look at what actually played out in the market, not what some expert hypothesizes might play out in the market. So let's look at what happened at Stanford University in the summer of 2020 when it chose to eliminate 11 of its 36 varsity sports ostensibly as a COVID-related cost-saving measure. And it really caused a firestorm at Stanford. It became a national story. And I want to talk about it in the context of the justifications that Stanford offered for cutting these sports and the ways in which they invisibly articulated Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model in the way that it responded to criticism. So uh, a couple of quick preliminary observations here. First of all, Stanford University is one of the wealthiest, most powerful, most prestigious, and most highly selective universities, not just in the United States of America, but in the world. Their endowment is now around $30 billion, which places them, I think, in fourth place among institutions in America. So they are an institution of extraordinary resources, extraordinary resources. Stanford University thinks big, and Stanford's athletics programs are no different. Stanford has 36 varsity sports, and that is almost double the number of varsity sports that other Division I schools have. And even within the Power Five, Stanford's way ahead of the pack here. I don't, I don't know if there's another school that has more than 36 sports, but Stanford's right there at the top in, in terms of the number of teams that it sponsors and pays for. And remember, Baylor has 19. And I guess I should just note here that the NCAA has divisional requirements for the minimum number of teams that the school sponsors in order to qualify for membership in a particular division. At the Division One level, it's 16 sports. And I think that minimum sport offering requirement is consistent, at least broadly, with trying to enhance participation opportunities and not having an athletics department that's focused exclusively on the revenue producing sports. But it was interesting during COVID, and I think this was in April of 2020, as things were really starting to look bleak across America and all kinds of economic sectors, including college sports. Some of the Division One schools below the Power Five, I think the Group of Five, and then some other conferences joined in, they petitioned the NCAA for a blanket waiver of that minimum sport requirement as a short-term cost-cutting measure. The Power Five didn't join in, but, you know, the group of five is just below the Power Five. So we're talking about FBS schools and schools that are trying to run with the big dogs. Their revenues aren't big enough from football and men's basketball to pay for the entire athletics budget. So you have subsidies there from the university. But they came in and said, look, we need some relief here. The NCAA denied the blanket waiver, but said that they would consider waivers on a school by school basis. So I I'm not so sure that participation opportunities are the sacred cow that Miles Brand made them out to be as the primary justification for this massive redistribution of wealth, or the sacred cow that Linda Livingstone made them out to be at this hearing on September 30th. And in a little bit, I'm going to talk uh, more about participation opportunities and how they fit into this constitutional committee that Livingstone sits on because there's some very interesting results there. But uh, Stanford's on the upper end there. And of course, they don't need the NCAA's permission to reduce sports above that 16 sport threshold. And they can choose at their discretion whether to, to fund those sports. So Stanford was really the gold standard in terms of participation opportunities. But in this COVID-inspired fear and panic and who knows what, what other factors may have gone into their decision, but they decide to eliminate 11 sports and there was immediate outrage. And then on July 8th of 2020, they published a series of questions and answers, an FAQ on this whole decision where they were justifying it. And they put some questions in here that are pretty direct and good questions, I think, and they tried to answer them. So let's look at what these sports were. So they decided that at the conclusion of the 2021 season, they were going to just ax men's and women's fencing, field hockey lightweight rowing, then men's rowing, 
then co-ed and women's sailing, squash, synchronized swimming, men's volleyball, and wrestling. Stanford and the FAQs, they note that six of the 11 sports aren't even NCAA-sponsored championships. So lightweight rowing, men's rowing, co-ed and women's sailing, squash, synchronized swimming. They're not even NCAA sports, but Stanford was fully funding them in their athletics department. And when they were answering these questions, the obvious questions were, wait a minute, you got all this money. Why in the world can't we find some financial support somewhere in the budget to pay for these sports and, and to keep them alive? There was this deeply entrenched belief system, value system at the university that the athletics department had to be fully self-sustaining. And there were questions about, well, what about the coaching salaries in football, men's basketball? What about the overhead costs there? What about all the black hole that, that a lot of people perceive those two sports to be? And Stanford just came back and said, no, those are untouchable. They didn't invoke the collegiate model. But what they're really saying there is that if you're going to have a self-sustaining athletics department, you have to keep those two products operating at full steam so they can support all the downstream non-revenue sports and all of the infrastructure necessary to run a big-time athletics department. And the bottom line with those two uh, premises is that non-athletic money, general university money, is off limits. It's just off limits. And they have a pretty robust endowment program just for athletics. A lot of private schools do this. I don't know if this is much a thing with the public schools, but at private schools, and Duke, my alma mater, uh, does this, and they try to get as many scholarships endowed as they can, and they have endowment funds and really have tried to move towards a model of self-sustaining, at least scholarships. That's a great thing, and that goes a long way, but it doesn't pay for the whole athletics department. And so they say, yeah, we have all this money, but it's not enough money. And yeah, we have this endowment, but we're not going to tap into the endowment. And that's fair. (laughs) Wouldn't think they would need to tap into their $30 billion endowment to pay for 11 sports that shouldn't be all that expensive. And one of the points that Stanford made was the way that they bring in money, so much of it is earmarked by private donors to specific uses that we don't have the flexibility that you might think we have because of our overall wealth. And that may be true. Who knows? But Stanford's a private institution. They're not subject to open records requests. They're not as transparent as public universities. And university financing is so complicated, it would be almost impossible to know with any certainty you know, how, how the money moves there or, or any other similarly situated big-time university. But they said independent of that, we need our athletics department to be self-sustaining, but they don't say why. They don't say at the values level why they can't pay for these sports from other funds. And that, I think, reflects the power of this built-in belief system in the uh, Power Five world that these athletics department budgets have to be fully self-sustaining. And that belief system puts just extraordinary pressure on those two sports, football and men's basketball. And that pressure flows downhill from the university to the athletics department, from the athletics director, down to the coaches and down to the players. These athletes are under extraordinary pressure that's invisible to the public because in this world, this parallel universe that the Power Five have created, in large part because of Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model, these athletes are bearing more and more responsibility and they're squeezing more and more money out of those two sports because in this model, that's the only revenue that they have access to to fund all the rest of the athletics department. And it's just an insane system, particularly at institutions that obviously can pull money from other parts of the university to fund any shortfall in athletics. And there's no question about that. At the threshold level, Stanford's argument that it simply can't find the money to pay for these 11 sports is absurd on its face. And in one of the FAQs, the question was, okay, you're cutting these sports, you're eliminating programs, you're cutting athletic staffing. 
what's the savings? How much money is this going to save? And Stanford was coy on that, but they said, we projected annually it'll save us about $8 million. <laughs> That's pocket change for Stanford University. But the, the bottom line here for Stanford was we cannot pay for these sports. There is no way. We've you know, run through all the options. We've fielded all the questions. We've met with the stakeholders. There is absolutely zero chance that we can find the money to pay for these sports. And so, you know, what do you do? So there were, there was this large group of former athletes and alumni and actually current athletes too. I forget the name of it. It had, it had a name and they were trying to convince the school to reinstate these programs and they were raising money. I mean, they were doing all the right things to really try to support these sports and, and these athletes who had every expectation that when they came to Stanford, they were going to be able to compete in those sports. So then in May, May 12th, I think it was, a group of athletes, two actually two groups of athletes sued Stanford. One group was uh, a group of women athletes who were making a Title IX claim that their sports uh, were being chopped off and eliminated, and that was a violation of Title IX. And then another group of athletes, I'm not sure what sports were represented here, their theory was that Stanford had breached a contract they made when they promised them that they were going to continue these sports despite COVID. So you had these two lawsuits and on the breach of contract suit, guess who was representing the athletes? None other than Jeffrey Kessler, the very lawyer who represented the athletes in the Austin case in the U.S. Supreme Court. So you had these two lawsuits filed on May 12th and then on May 18th. Six days later, Stanford University announces that it is reinstating all 11 sports. So that, that's a stunning about face, don't you think? But the more important question is, where in the world did Stanford find this money? This money that simply was inaccessible on May 11th became freely accessible as of May 18th. What happened? Where'd it come from? Stanford doesn't say. And where it came from, Stanford just said, oh, hell, we, we can't defend these suits. And discovery in those suits would have been brutal. But Stanford just wanted this thing to go away and it went away quickly and they found the money. They found the money. And I think what the Stanford University natural experiment proves up and also this belief that Livingstone and Emmert are promoting in Congress that we just have to fund these athletics departments from athletics revenue is that the interests that they are now claiming should be valuable enough to justify extraordinary federal protections and immunities aren't important enough for the universities themselves to fund. And I guess I just want to talk a little bit more about participation opportunities as the standalone value that Miles Brand used in 2006 to justify this massive diversion of wealth from uh, football, men's basketball to downstream beneficiaries and non-revenue sports. And then as it was used in that hearing on September 30th, so explicitly in a way that it hadn't been used in any of the discussions in this nil debate starting in 2019. And the reason it's so important to, to look at that in more detail is that when you listen to the rhetoric from the NCAA and the Power Five and university presidents like Linda Livingstone, you're led to believe that this commitment to participation opportunities is a primary value that is universally agreed upon across all of the stakeholder interests in big-time college sports. And, and because of the way that these hearings have been staged by lobbyists and lawyers, you really don't see the decision-makers, the men and women in Congress, asking questions that really penetrate beneath the bare assertions that people like Mark Emmert and Linda Livingstone make. And it would have been really interesting to see how Livingstone would have responded to questions that really drilled down on how widely held this belief is that participation opportunities are really the keystone of the big time college sports business model and its decision making. We don't have access to that information. And in fact, it's really unknowable, absent either a deep dive by Congress into those issues that go beneath the bare assertions and these broad brush narratives that just receive 
instantaneous consent through circular amplification within Power 5 interests and then also in a compliant media. But in this case, we have a unique opportunity here to look at what the membership really thinks about participation opportunities. And again, because these Senate committees are so ignorant, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, They're, they are, they, the NCAA wants them ignorant, but because they know so little about what's really going on at the NCAA national office and with all of its machinations now to stay relevant, they probably didn't know that before Linda Livingstone sat in front of a microphone on September 30th of 2021, she had the results of a survey of this constitutional committee on which she serves, on which she serves, that make a mockery of Linda Livingstone's central argument at that hearing. And that is that these participation opportunities are sacred cows. That is a sacred cow philosophy underlying the entire business model and that all stakeholders in college sports agree with that central fundamental premise. And that's simply not true. The work of this constitutional committee has gotten scant coverage, and I'm not quite sure why that is. The NCAA has been blasting it on their website. Bob Gates, the independent member of the Board of Governors, came out as the face of that movement, and he's kind of disappeared all of a sudden. There's some very interesting things going on. And again, that's going to be my next inquiry. So this is a good segue in some ways, the discussion of this survey. It's a good segue and preview of where I'm going to be heading in my discussion of the Constitutional Committee. But the NCAA did this survey on its own. They didn't farm this out to some external polling company. This was an inside job, just as the Constitutional Committee is an inside committee comprised exclusively of NCAA insiders at the highest level, just like Linda Livingstone, who, who serves on the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. But I just want to go through a couple of things just that are right on point with this participation opportunities narrative. And before I get to that, I just want to go through some basic information on the response rates. So they sent this survey out, and actually there were two surveys. We, we don't see the actual survey itself. That's not accessible. Only the NCAA's compilation of the results and presentation of the results. And I'm just going to, I'm going to rip this thing apart when I get to it. This is just uh, an unbelievable document on so many levels. But we have to take this information at face value. We can't look behind it. And there's no underlying data that we have access to. But one survey went to athletes and it looks like it went only to athletes who have leadership positions on the student athletic advisory commission structure that is an NCAA structure as I've said in other episodes with the student council for the NCAA so this is not at all a representative view of the interests among students because these committees are loaded with non-revenue athletes they're overwhelmingly white and they are on the other side of the earth from the interests of the athletes who actually pay for their scholarships. So again, this is just the way the NCAA rolls. But um, among the, the in-system stakeholder beneficiary class, the institutional stakeholders, they sent surveys to these categories of people presidents and chancellors, okay, who are supposed to be in charge of this whole shoot and match. And they are the the ones who bear the ultimate responsibility. The buck is supposed to stop with them under the NCAA constitution and principles of institutional control. And article six of the NCAA constitution, which is dedicated exclusively to, to presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics. Then we have athletics direct reports. I'm not quite sure what that is. And then we have faculty athletics representatives. I've talked about them. They're the liaison between the academic side and the athletic side. Then you have conference commissioners or executive directors of the conferences. Then you have athletics directors. Then you have senior compliance administrators, senior women administrators, athletics diversity and inclusion designees, and athletics health care administrators. All those categories of institutional stakeholders received surveys. You would think since 
the concept of presidential leadership and control of intercollegiate athletics is now so deeply embedded into the DNA of the way that the big time college sports marketplace and higher education think about the relationship between the universities and the uh, sports that they sponsor, you would think that there would be almost 100% participation among the university presidents. Well, guess what? In Division One, the response rate for university presidents and chancellors was 37%. 37%. of the people who are responsible for the conduct and control of intercollegiate athletics took a powder on this survey, and the survey would have taken them 20 minutes to complete. They couldn't find 20 minutes to complete this survey. And I'll, I'll get in, in, into this in more detail in other episodes. I, the NCAA ought to publish a list of all of the Division I university presidents and chancellors who responded and didn't respond. That would be an interesting list to look at. And then they also ask all of these institutional stakeholders. I'm excluding the athletes here. This is just the institutional stakeholders in that group of people that I just listed. The question is, should presidents, chancellors have primary oversight for intercollegiate athletics? And of that small number of Division I presidents and chancellors who actually answered the survey, 83% of those university presidents and chancellors said, yes, yes, we should be in charge. But then when you go down to the rest of the stakeholders, it, it doesn't look so good for these presidents. You have the faculty athletics representatives at a 54% rate saying presidents and chancellors should be in charge and conference commissioners, 50%, directors of athletics, 52%. The compliance administrators say yes, only at a rate of 23%, only 23%. Some of those people think that presidents should be in charge. Only 36% of senior women administrators think presidents should be in charge. And then the diversity and inclusion designee, 26%. I mean, these numbers are just abysmal. And now to the direct question that is right was put right on the table at this September 30th hearing. And the survey asked all of the stakeholders, athletes and then all these institutional stakeholders, should sport participation opportunities be increased? And these percentages are the percentages of stakeholders who said yes. Among the athletes, 54% of Division I athletes said yes, which you would expect. The athletes would be the beneficiaries of those opportunities, but that's still a low number, I think. University presidents and chancellors, only 35% of that paltry number that actually responded to the survey said that sports participation opportunities should be increased. So I just want to stop right there. This notion that Linda Livingstone was speaking a truth that is widely held by her peers in Division I college sports is a false narrative. And she knew that because she had the results of this survey when she sat behind the microphone on September 30th of 2021. Now, let's go down the, the list here. So that's 35% of presidents of the 37% that actually bothered to respond to a 20-minute survey. The faculty athletics representatives, they're important people in this machine, in the big-time college sports machine here. And 41% of uh, faculty athletics representatives said, yes, increased participation opportunities. Conference commissioners, only 32%. Athletics directors, 23%. Senior compliance administrators, 31%. Senior women administrators, this position, this offensive position that is defined by uh, gender. And I, I just had to wipe this thing off, off the uh, NCAA rule book because it really is condescending. But among the senior women administrators, only 24% said, yes, we should increase participation opportunities. And that is fundamentally inconsistent with the packaging of this September 30th hearing. It is a false narrative that there is unanimity among stakeholders that participation opportunities are the sacred principle that should be the driving force in congressional policy making and in legislation making that would justify the complete federalization of the college sports marketplace and the NCAA regulatory authority. And then just to close this out with the other stakeholders here that answered this question, let's see, only 33% of athletics diversity and inclusion designees said that 
participation opportunities should be increased. And again, we have senior women's administrators and athletics diversity inclusion designees at about a 30% rate saying yes, and about a 70% rate saying no, it's not important. That Again, that just makes a mockery of the way that this hearing was packaged because it was presented through the lens of women uh, and the interests of women and the interests of minority women. And that face is just fundamentally inconsistent with how those stakeholder groups think about this issue behind the scenes and in, a, in response to a, a survey. And then the last category, I just have to point this out too, I don't know, these athletics health care administrators, they don't have any skin in the game on the PC side and the packaging side and the imaging side. They said, let's see, only 17% of them said, yeah, participation opportunities should be increased. So again, I'm going to really uh, get into this survey and the way that the NCAA tries to manipulate the results of this survey is almost comical. Actually, it, it reads like a Saturday Night Live skit. When you look at the actual raw data and then how the NCAA tries to massage it in narratives and the use of quotes from survey participants, it's just really, uh, really entertaining. But the, the big point here is that this fundamental justification for the collegiate model, for the massive redistribution of wealth, and now for the grant of extraordinary federal protections and immunities to protect the current business model is based on a lie. So we'll see what happens here. But the arguments that were made at this hearing on September 30th, just a month ago, were awful. They were just awful and indefensible in my judgment. So... We're going to now transition into this constitutional committee and our timing is good because in just a couple or three weeks, we're going to see, I think we're going to be able to see what the initial recommendations are and have a good sense of what this is all about. I have my thoughts and I'm going to share them here in the next few episodes. And that's going to require really some backfilling on what the rhetoric was when this Constitutional Committee was formed in early August and some of the external events that I think may have added to the motivation to form this committee to make it look like the NCAA was doing something. But those initial justifications have morphed, as is often the case with the NCAA, and some interesting things have happened. So I want to set the table for that. I'm just going to do a chronology walking through what happened uh, with this constitutional committee and then tie it into some of the other things that are happening on the NCAA Power 5 side of the equation that I believe are directly related to the ultimate goal of this constitutional committee. And it's my belief that that is to reestablish NCAA relevance for the primary purpose of preserving the NCAA bureaucracy, which means preserving the March madness money flow. That's what this is about. You got to keep that March Madness contract in place. And the NCAA needs to have a, a good enough justification as a national regulator to justify getting that money. And we're going to talk about that in, in uh, some detail. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I just want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. <laughs>